Welcome everyone to the Inspired Jewish Woman podcast, a place to come together to meet other passionate Jewish women from around the globe. We here value unity and we come together from different backgrounds, places and stages in life. We focus on what unites us being a Jewish woman. We believe that every woman has a beautiful and unique light to shine to our community and to the world. In these podcast interviews, we find the light in others, and we learn from everyone. These are the topics that matter most to you and empower you to be the inspired Jewish woman that you want to be. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another installment of our Inspired Jewish Women weekly interview podcast. And today I have a fabulous new friend of mine. Hi, Mandy. Say hi to everyone. Hi, ladies. Hi, everyone. Hi, whoever's listening. I know. It's like when you put it out into the world, you have no clue who's going to hear this. We just hope and pray that it gets to the right hands and that people listen to it and something ignites inside of them. I'm just going to introduce you with a short bio and then you could add a little bit to it, Mandy. So Mandy grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Maybe that's why we just have this natural connection. But now she calls Chicago home. She's a fundraiser, a performer, and a mother. She works for the Friendship Circle of Illinois and is also the founder and director of the Family Fund. Ooh, we want to hear about that. The nation's first maternity leave fund benefiting Chicagoland's Jewish community. So excited to have you with us today and feel free to share anything more you want to add to your bio about yourself. Like you said, the Pacific Northwest definitely has a specific vibe. So when you said you're in Portland, I was like, oh, I know all about what Portland is. I mean, I actually grew up like a 90 minute drive north of that. And I think I'll always be Pacific Northwesterner at heart. Mm-hmm. I've actually lived really a lot of places all over the world and coming to back to the US, I was in Seattle before moving to Chicago and I'd never been to Chicago, never been to the Midwest, was not on my radar. And it's definitely a different vibe. And you learn things about yourself when you're in a new place and like experiencing a new culture. So, I mean, a lot of them think I'm like this hippie freak from Seattle who believes in, you know, compost and recycling and organic food. (laughs) I want to ask you, what do you miss most about the Pacific Northwest? I think I miss the mountains, the ocean, the water. I mean, Chicago is very flat. And both Olympia, where I grew up, and Seattle, where I was living more recently, our port cities so there's a lot of water it's just very fresh it depends on what kind of person you are because my sister also grew up there and she cannot stand the gray it just really like bums her out and she likes sunshine and for me I really like the gray I like the mist there's something about it that just feels calming to me right and the longer you live in this neck of the woods not even rain we just call it mist you'll never see a Portlandian with an umbrella you'll never see that over here it's like part of it it's why our skin is so good. It's just like so moist. <laughs> and a lack of sun to give us wrinkles. I think. Yeah. But yeah, in Seattle, we always say like you can spot a tourist if they're holding an umbrella. But here in Chicago, when it rains, I mean, it downpours. It's torrential wow. sometimes. It's like stressful. You have to get inside. So people wow. are like, well, you're used to this, right? And I'm like, no. Wow. Well, welcome here. And I'm excited for our conversation today. I'll tell you how we met. I'll just tell our listeners. One of my many Facebook groups that I frequent on, this one was called Kol Isha. It's a group for performers, for dancers, for singers, for Jewish women to just come together and have a safe space to share our talents and our passions. 
I don't know, I think someone tagged me in a post that you put out. It was a poetry slam. Someone tagged me. So I'm like, okay, I'll listen. I don't watch everything. There's so much that comes in. Thank God there's so much talent in the Jewish world. And I watched your under three minute poetry slam. And I was like, who is this woman? And how come we're not friends? (laughs) Where where have you been all my life? So here we are. It was pretty fast. I reached out to you on Facebook Messenger. I said, I have a women's retreat tomorrow morning. Would you be on it? And you were like, I'm in, I have two little kids that I'm bouncing on my knees and I have carpools and pickups, you know, <laughs> all that stuff that you had going on, but you were there and you showed up and you introduced yourself to the hundred women that were there. And so many people were just blown away by your poetry slam that you shared with us on that virtual experience. I'm grateful to whoever it was that tagged me in a post to say, Eve, check her out. There's some talent that you need to uncover over here. So do you want to share a piece of that poetry slam with us now? Yeah, why not? Awesome. Okay, I'm going to start from the beginning and give you a nice taste of it. Okay, ready? I feel it from time to time. The struggles. They want to dull my shine. But my shine is mine, and my mistakes do not define, and my light, my light will not be dimmed. My soul will be not, not be diminished. I'm not finished. I will rise, I will soar, I'll be better than I was before, and if you doubt, you'll soon find out. It doesn't matter if I'm thinner, if I'm fatter, if my hair looks great. Let's concentrate on what's important. I am not the sum of my wardrobe, the dollars and cents in my bank account. I'm not a collection of others' opinions. Are they talking about me? Do they like me? Can they see me? No one knows what it's like to be me. I have a piece of God inside of me and he's the one on this ride with me and I answer only to him. Which voices in my head will I give the credibility? Can I reject my own fragility, refine my sensitivity or believe the lies I tell about me? Wow, 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 wow. First of all, I mean, there's so much to this. You're an amazing writer. That's one of your talents, clearly, okay? You're an amazing performer, even like a two minute poetry slam that you just did for us. I'm like sitting on the edge of my seat. I feel there's a lot of drama in your words. You're not just reading a script, you're really feeling it. It's coming across very strongly. Tell me what goes in to making, to writing, to putting something like that together and to preparing it to bring it forward into the world. So, I mean, to start off with, I've been acting since I was five years old. At one point in time, in my childhood, I really thought like, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm meant to do. I acted, I started dance classes when I was 10, got really into dance, did that competitively. I did a lot of musical theater. So I got some voice coaching along the way. I mean, I just loved it and it came very naturally to me. And I thought like, this is my thing. So that is definitely in me, like that dramatic side. I think I can kind of plug into that naturally. With the slam poem, I did it for a show that I'm part of here in Chicago. And I specifically wanted to do slam poetry because I did a little bit of it in college, but it had been a long time. And I'm always trying to bring new stuff to the show. Like there's a lot of singing, there's a lot of dancing, nothing wrong with that, all great things and things that I love. But like one year on the show, we had martial arts. A year before my time, I know that someone did artistic multimedia presentation with her own original artwork. I just like different stuff, you know? It kind of, it forces people to sit up and pay attention and it brings something new to the table. So I knew that I wanted to do a slam poem and I hadn't like written one specifically. I hadn't done it in a long time and our theme was shine on. And I just thought, you know, I'm not going to put it in a box. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to write and we're going to see what comes out. 
And I wrote it in this very kind of stream of consciousness way. And it was very raw. And I wrote it pretty much all at one time. And with nothing more than the kind of general idea about shine and light that I sit down with any sort of like preconceived notion of what it would be about. And it just flowed. And I think that's another reason why I can really deliver it organically because it was just a lot of thoughts and feelings from within myself. And it's really kind of visceral, even for me. You're, you're channeling something, definitely. Yeah, it felt bigger than myself. I mean, not to sound cheesy, but we all have those moments, I think, especially if you're artistically inclined where the creativity really just flows and you're not forcing it and you, you don't even feel like you're really directing it. You're just channeling it, like you said. Songwriters and performers, artists, they let themselves go when they could get in that space. Yeah. So, wow. So first of all, what came to me as you were speaking was the fact that you are a balat teshuva, right? A returnee to Judaism, to an observant life or what, however you want to call yourself. Right. And what I love about the world of balat teshuva is that they bring something different to the table. I've never seen an observant lady doing a poetry slam before. Like, it's just, I think I've seen one, Chaya Lester. But the diversity, your background, your training, all that you've brought to the table is adding so much to just the diversity of what it means to be a, an observant Orthodox Jew, right? I mean, yeah, it's so sure. beautiful. So, so beautiful. As you're saying it, I, I felt like snapping every three seconds, like, oh yeah, oh yeah. It was like, Whoo. okay, so, so great. Like at the end, you just snap, right? You know, I need like bongo oh. drums. <laughs> oh, yes. We were going to talk about empowering yourself to bring positive change to the world. And the title that you gave was Who? Me? Which I think is so you. That's you. That's how you talk. That's how you write. That's how you perform. And it's, with that snap, it's like, you know, move out of the way because I am here and I have something to bring to the world. I have a light that I want to share. So I want to hear about your process what you've done, maybe give us a little bit of background, how it started. Okay, so, well, building on what I said before, I love performing. It was a major part of my life. And then when I was towards the end of high school, I come from the background where it's like, you finish high school, you go to college, that's what you do. I mean, in our generation, I feel like that has just become the norm. It wasn't like that necessarily with, you know, my parents and their parents, but that's what you do, you go to college. So then I really had to start thinking, what do I want to study? So my first answer was, you know, theater. I'm going to do either straight theater, musical theater, so I can keep my dance, my singing, you know, who knows? And I started visiting schools and I didn't like any of them. It was very strange. You know, when you think you want something in your mind, you know, you're like, this is for me. This is what I want. It's going to happen. And then you get there and it's not what you thought it would be. It's not doing it for you. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how it was for me. How many people just go with it? they've told themselves that that's what they're doing you must be a very conscious type of person like living consciously like in touch with yourself that you were able to say hold on this is not feeling right let's yeah. take another route yeah maybe I mean I definitely just went with my gut and I kind of was back to square one so my initial plan at that point was to just find different schools you know different theater programs to explore but then at the same time as I was going to be making arrangements for that I kind of just had this niggling feeling in the back of my mind like maybe this is not what I should be doing. And even though I was fairly young, I was able to sit down and really kind of evaluate, what do I want to do with my life? What do I want to do for a job? What other sorts of skills do I have that maybe need honing? What I started to realize was like, you know, college is not so cheap. And if I really wanted to perform, I could just go perform. 
was very near Seattle, it has a very vibrant arts community. I could have tried to go to LA. I could have gone to New York. I mean, there are lots of places that you can go and just start auditioning. And if that's what you want to do with your life, that's what you can do, right? But I was really afraid of having to be a waitress and having to sort of just take whatever parts I could get. And that kind of scared me a little bit. And I also felt like I do want to go to school, but if I'm going to go to school and spend thousands of dollars on it, I don't know that theater is the right direction for me to go. And maybe, just maybe, there's something else I'm meant to be doing and there's like other skills I could offer the world. Because also from a young age, I felt passionate about helping people. I've been involved with community service you know, from a young age and that always seemed like the most valuable thing that you could do. So I decided to study communications instead and I did performing on the side, you know, I was very involved on campus. I directed the junior class play and I was in the musical and I found other gigs and whatever other stuff I could do. So it just kind of became a passion instead. So I graduated college in 2008 and everyone I'm sure remembers how the economy was faring in 2008. So I graduated college, like just in time for there to be no jobs whatsoever. And I was a barista and I worked in a pizza restaurant and I nannied and I did whatever I had to, to pay my bills. I was definitely not moving back home. That was not, you know, an option for me. And I decided I I really want to go back to school. Like the communications was good. And I think it, it taught me to be a pretty good writer and public speaker, but I wanted to work in nonprofit. So I wanted to take that aspect of helping people further and, you know, potentially make a career out of it. So I had actually done a semester exchange at a university in Australia during my undergrad and I loved it and I knew I wanted to go back. So I applied and I got in and I was really excited. And in the meantime, I did some really fun, like cool stuff because I had worked so hard because I just needed the money and like there were no jobs and it was, it was crazy. I also, I graduated college a year early because I was trying to save money and Anyway, it was a pretty hectic time. So I was like, I'm going to do something fun before that. So I danced, went to Vancouver, BC, and I slept on my best friend's couch for a while and danced at her studio there. And I went down to Orange County for a while because I have a cousin there and took classes there. And I I got into a dance program in Israel. And I did that for five months. And that was really cool. Pushed me way outside of my like creative comfort zone. But ultimately I knew that I had grad school already in the bag. Like I knew that I was starting that. This was just sort of my fun little romp before doing that. And then I went and got my master's degree in international relations and I wanted to work in nonprofit. Didn't know exactly what that would look like. I thought maybe doctors without borders, something like that. And actually when I finished my master's, the university offered me a position teaching in the international relations department. I had been teaching public speaking because it was a core class. So they needed lots of people to do it. So you didn't have to have the highest qualifications, you know, and in Australia, it's a little different. You only have to have the degree above to teach the degree below. So once I had my master's, I was qualified to teach at the bachelor's level. And I did that for about a year. I fell into academia. I liked it. I liked my friends. I really liked Australia. But the truth is at that point, I felt very sort of spiritually lacking. I had begun to explore more of my Jewish roots way back in Idaho, where I went to college, believe it or not. And over those four years or so, I had kept that up and I had wanted to kind of be more involved. And I had you know, been questioning a lot about what's important to me and what do I believe and what should I be doing? But I think at my stage, it was hard. I need more Jewish infrastructure. I need more resources. I need more people from a variety of backgrounds. So you needed yeah. Jewish boys to date. Right. Yeah. So there are Jews in Australia, but I was not in Melbourne or Sydney. I, I mean, was on the Gold Coast. Are there Coast. Jews in Idaho? <laughs> Because <laughs> there are only potatoes there. <laughs> there are Jews in Idaho. Actually, fun fact, the first governor of Idaho was Jewish. Wow. So Idaho still has the oldest 
still functioning shoal west of the Mississippi in Idaho. Wow, so interesting. Yeah, so who would have thunk? No, but everyone in Idaho is like older and married. It's not, there's no like Jewish dating scene, but also on the Gold Coast in Australia where I was, I was there because that's where the university was, but it's a small like holiday spot. It's not really a large Jewish community and everyone who goes there mostly are students. So they're very transient. Mm. So no, that was also a problem was like, I had really decided I wanted to marry someone Jewish and I wasn't finding anyone. I dated like a couple of guys and it wasn't working out. And I had like some serious thinking to do. So ultimately I decided to move back to the States. I moved to Seattle and I called my rabbi in Idaho and was like, where should I go? And he hooked me up with his friend, this guy that he sort of knew through friends of friends and I really hit it off with him and his wife. So ultimately Seattle is where I, you know, became more observant and it's where I got my first job in nonprofit. So I worked for the Friendship Circle in Seattle doing fundraising and communications. Friendship Circle, is that a Chabad run program? Yeah, so it's a Chabad run institution. Same as like Chabad houses, except the goal is to promote inclusion of individuals with disabilities. So the Friendship Circle partners typically developing teenage volunteers with kids and young adults with disabilities so that they can build friendships and they can kind of break down those barriers. And, you know, through exposure and understanding, families of kids with disabilities feel really accepted. And, you know, the the typical teens learn that people with disabilities are really not that different. And so it's just working on including everyone within the Jewish community and beyond. Friendship Circle, is that a national project? I've heard of it many, many times in many communities. Are they all interconnected? They're all independently run, independently funded, but they're all based on the same model. So the first one started in Detroit in 1994, and now there's like, I think, 95 worldwide. We share a lot of information and ideas, and many of us do the same programs, but it's all based on what your unique community needs. So yeah, I started in Seattle, and I learned fundraising on the job. I got the job because we had friends in common. They needed someone. I was driven. I was really like, I'm going to get this job. It's my first like real job. That's what it felt like, you know, because when I graduated college, it just wasn't happening. And I felt passionate about their work and the communications I had down, the fundraising I hadn't done, but I had a lot of technical writing experience. So I felt like, listen, I can research the grant writing process. Like I can do this for you and anything else that you need, like words spun, that's what I do, you know? So I felt like I had a lot to learn and that I was excited about it. And they hired me and I worked there for almost two years and I left because I was getting married and I got married and moved to Chicago because my husband was here. And so then I reached out to the friendship circle here and was like, I don't know what your situation is. I don't know if you need someone who writes grants, you know, who helps with this kind of stuff, but I'd love to help you. And it turns out that Vasi Moskowitz, like the wife of the husband wife duo who run the one here is actually my Revitson from Idaho's cousin. Oh, wow. That's so there was that connection, which is really nice. And now I've been with them for like four years, I guess. Are you working now for the Friendship Circle in, in Chicago? In yep, in Chicago area. And running your nonprofit at the same Correct. time. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I also do a lot of freelance writing and, and fundraising on the side. <laughs> like the job that pays the bills. And then there's like the passion. Exactly. <laughs> it doesn't always pay the bills, but it really provides a lot of satisfaction. So it sounds right. like you've been really blessed to bring the job and the passion into your life together. Yeah. It took a while for things to fall into place. I graduated college 2008, graduated my master's 2012 because I, you know, took time off in between and was just working and whatnot. Got married in 2015, moved here. But like I said, that first year I tried teaching, it wasn't for me. So I don't think I started working for the Friendship Circle here until end of 2016. I don't know, summer of I think it was 2017. So it felt like it took a while to fall into place. Yeah. But once it did, I mean, I feel really, really lucky 
I love being a part of their team. I've learned so much. I believe in the work they do. And it's taught me a lot that led to my ability to to start the family fund. Tell us about that because I think many of the women that are listening are moms really yeah. understand the struggle, the balance, right? It's all about balance, right? There's a lot of sacrifice involved and some of it is healthy and normal and some of it is is not okay. You know, we shouldn't have to sacrifice so much to be a working mom. We should be able to have our time and space to heal, to enjoy yeah. our baby, to nurse if we choose to. And there's always that pressure that we hold in today's generation of also providing for the family. Not only do we have to nurture and grow our family and keep them healthy and alive, but we also need to provide. It's just, I think nowadays, many of us, we need two incomes to provide for our family, especially some of us that have children in Jewish tuition education, right? Private school systems, because it's a really big consideration, right? When you have many children, you have to figure out how to provide five years, 10 years, 20 years down the line. I mean, hopefully by 20 years, they'll be on their feet. So tell us about what you're doing and let's not get so far down. Let's start with babies where it's nice and sweet and cuddly. And we just want to be with our children. How do we make that happen? Okay. So basically I had my daughter, I have a four-year-old daughter and I had her here and I had been at that teaching job, which besides the fact that I didn't love it, <laughs> when it came time to discuss, you know, paid leave, and I had her in the summer. She's born in July. So I would have had a little bit of time before the school year started, but not very much, right? And so then I found out that it's like, well, they don't have a paid leave policy, really. It's like you can have six weeks off unpaid. And if you're lucky enough to have a baby in the summer like me, well, then you should be good as new by September and they're ready to start the year again, you know? And that... A was my first baby. I really didn't know how I was going to feel. But the truth is that even when you have multiple kids, some pregnancies are harder than others. Some deliveries are harder than others. Some babies are harder than others. There's a lot that goes into it. So I just was basically shocked. And I certainly was influenced by having spent time in Australia and seeing how things were there. I knew that was not the policy there. And I just thought this is wrong. And it was really hard. At that point, I decided not to go back to that teaching job. And that's when I actually reached out to Bossy and Telic because I thought I've got to be able to do something from home. This is nuts. Like I've got to be able to work, but I have to be able to take care of my baby and feel like a person and heal. And it's interesting. I'm sure you've done a lot of research in different cultures and different countries. You know, in Israel, you barely get any time off. I was with a newborn baby on my hip when I went back to work. Mm. It's pretty insane. And yet in Toronto, where I was raised, you get a year of maternity leave and your husband yeah. could get half a year of paternity leave. Like you could split your time. It's really incredible how far yeah. they go to provide. And yet I'm sure there are studies to see like down the line, like how the mother heals, how the children are adjusted. There's a lot of ripple effects to those very major milestones in a child's life. And if they were properly yeah. taken care of. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I could give you all kinds of scary and like depressing statistics. I actually wrote an article for Kveller about the family fund. I can give you the link if anyone wants to check it out because in that one, I list a lot of like the statistics because the truth is that it's pretty sparse as far as like the countries that don't offer anything. I mean, especially first world countries, we're the only one, but even like compared to African nations, you know what I'm saying? Like you get better maternity leave in Zimbabwe than you do in the United States. It's pretty shocking. But I had thought there has to be something out there. Surely someone in the private sector has 
created something to fill this gap, right? To fill the need. So I started Googling thinking there's got to be some sort of foundation. Like if it's not national, maybe I could do something. No, I don't know. That's crazy. Maybe I could start my own. No, I would never, you know, I like really had not intended to start my own nonprofit, but I'll tell you, I didn't find any results for any actual like private foundations giving grants for maternity leave. What I did find were multiple women crowdfunding their own maternity leave. I'm like, go fund me. I'm not making this up. And I just was like outraged, to be honest. I really felt this like righteous anger building up inside of me. And I thought there's got to be a better way. This is crazy. I had gotten a bachelor's degree. I'd gotten a master's degree. I had honed my professional skills. I knew that my talents were valuable for the nonprofit world. And so both needing the income for our family, but also for my own personal fulfillment. I think there's nothing wrong with women wanting to work and getting enjoyment from their careers, especially when they're doing things that help make the world a better place. So I felt like we shouldn't be forced to choose. Mm. This is just not the way it should be. So I toyed with the idea for probably a while. I mean, I wasn't just like, all right, that's it. I'm 100% creating my own nonprofit. But the more I thought about it, the more I kind of looked into it and just found like there's really nothing out there. Instead of being discouraged, I actually was really encouraged because there's a story that I love that's about the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was the most recent leader of the Chabad movement. His name is Menachem Mendel Schneerson. He became a very famous rabbi and people from all over the world came to see him. So this one man came to see him whose father had been, you know, a follower of the rabbi. And so the son had kind of followed in the footsteps and the son was a journalist and the rabbi was speaking to him and he said, oh, so if you're a journalist, you should interview me. And then the guy got kind of shy, like, I mean, I, I can't really like do an honest interview with the rabbi. I wouldn't want to step on his toes or offend him or anything. And the rabbi assured him, no, like you're a journalist, you do a real interview don't be afraid to ask me anything. And so the guy said, okay, well, I'm curious. Some people have been critical of the Rebbe because he acts unilaterally. You know, he doesn't always have other rabbis and other people and advisory boards and whatever, you know, guiding in his decisions and in like the movements and campaigns he decides to initiate. What would you say to that? What would you say to your critics? And the Rebbe said, there's a very famous story in the Torah where Moshe, Moses, is in the desert and he sees that there's an Egyptian beating a Jew. And the Torah says he looks to the right of him and he looks to the left of him. He doesn't see anyone, so he kills the Egyptian. He says most people interpret this story to think that Moses is looking to his right and his left to see if he's going to get in trouble, to see if there's anyone who's going to witness what he's going to do, right? Like he's, he's trying to cover his back. And he says Moses looks to his right, he looks to his left, and he doesn't see anyone there, so he knows he's the one that needs to do the job. Wow. And like, not to put myself like on the same level as like the Lubavitch Rebbe or some of these other great, but like, it's meant to give us strength and it's meant to empower us. And along the same time, I remember someone posted on Facebook, like this little speech from a rabbi that I'd never heard of. And I never click on these random things, you know, but he was just giving like a talk in his backyard. And he said, if you have an idea in your head of something to do, a project, something that's going to help people, and it doesn't go away. And it won't leave you alone. And it keeps replaying itself. You keep bumping into people, things that remind you of that. That's because God gave that thought to you. That's your mission. You're supposed to do something with it. Wow. So after a while, I thought, listen, I don't think I can ignore this anymore. I think like, I'm the one. Like, who, mm -hmm. me? <laughs> like, yeah, you. Yeah. Our sages talk about that. In a place where no one is doing the job, you have to do it. Right? Yeah. It was overwhelming, but it also was exciting. And we talked a little bit about what kind of advice can I give? I mean, my advice is like, start with what you do know. Mm. Now, I mean, I have been working in fundraising for quite a few years already. So I thought, okay, the money I've got down, you know, that I feel like not like you still need help and you still need to, 
make it work, but at least I've done that before because I think that can be a really intimidating thing to do if you've never done it before. Calling a nonprofit, it's like some paperwork, it takes some money, it's steps, but it's not hard. You know, but the idea of like, how am I going to spread the word? How am I going to communicate the need for the cause? How am I going to get people on my team? How am I going to, if we're going to give women money, how am I going to get people to give us money so that we can give it to the women? That was my challenge initially. And then comes in the show. So the slam poem, the excerpt that I read for you and the clip that you saw mm -hmm. is from a larger production that we did here in Chicago. And that production was something that I inherited. It's not something I invented. When I first moved here, there were two women that had already been doing the show for a few years, and I got to be in it for a couple years just performing, and it was kind of slowly growing. It started off as a smaller kind of 20-minute thing, part of another event, and the first year I was here, they did like a smaller standalone performance, and they really always wanted it to grow. There's so many talented Jewish women here in Chicago, but they both had multiple kids and had a lot going on and just really felt like they couldn't do it anymore. And that year, the same year that I'm doing the paperwork and figuring everything out to make the family fund, they asked me and my good friend, can we co-direct the show? And like, it was like a light bulb went off. I was like, the show, that's gonna be our coming out party. Like it's a show by women for women. The family fund is by women for women. And I can, I can get a chance to actually communicate to them the need and I can launch a campaign. And so it was a whole big thing. So basically the family fund gives cash grants to Jewish women in Chicagoland who are working and they have a baby and they don't receive paid time off, which unfortunately is most women. Because the other thing is there's something in the United States called FMLA, the Family Medical Leave Act, right? What it does is it guarantees you 12 weeks unpaid, protected within your job, if you have a baby or if you need to take care of a sick loved one, right? But the, there's a lot of holes in it, unfortunately. If you've been at your job, your current job for less than a year, you don't qualify. If you work less than 35 hours a week, you don't qualify. A lot of women work part-time, but their families need that money. And if you work for a small company, if, if your company employs less than 50 people, they don't have to offer it to you. Oh. So even 12 weeks unpaid, you can't count on, you know? Right. So basically, yeah, we now we give up to $750 to two women a month. And there is a, a very brief application process and most of it comes from word of mouth. And I asked my friends to be monthly donors in the very beginning. I mean, I have just sort of like hustled it because I'm really passionate about it. And so are a lot of our monthly donors. They tell their friends and I promote it here in Chicago. And, you know, it happened. I made it a reality. Like, thank God I did a little bit and I really feel like God kind of rained down the rest because it's such a necessary service and it helps prevent postpartum depression. It helps women who want to nurse be able to nurse, like you say. It helps the family be able to grow without feeling unnecessary financial strain. And it just helps take a little bit of the stress out of adding another one to your crew. Amazing. This is so beautiful. And as you're talking, I'm just seeing all the divine providence every step of the way, your skill set, your passion, like everything coming together, the need that you saw your own need, the need around you, the show, how it was all like just platforms. Like God was saying like, step up, Mandy, like it's all right. set. It's just like, it's going to be smooth. I'm curious how many women you've helped until now. That's a good question. So I took a year to fundraise, basically like from the first time that I mentioned it at the show, I launched a campaign. I was working on attracting a lot of monthly donors because that's really reliable income. And then I formed an advisory board and I had to figure out the application process and who's going to qualify and what are the income caps going to be. There was a lot to figure out. So I fundraised for a year. So we've only been distributing grants since 2019, I think July, 2019. Um, and it took a little while for us to get to the point where we were actually like getting to 
qualified applicants, almost everyone who applies is qualified, but actually like getting two applicants each month because people aren't, you know, hadn't necessarily been hearing about it. And like, I really had to spread the word. So it, I can't say that it's 24 yet, but that's huge. Somewhere in the teens, I would say, you know, like, and, and people email us with, with words of thanks and I pass it on. I have an email list that I give a, a monthly update to. And, and how, how many months help does each woman get? So right now it's a one-time check. It's a one-time check for $750. So how much time they actually get to take off? I mean, that's between them and their boss. We started at 500. So for the first year we just did, it was a one-time check of $500. And then this year we upped it to 750. So I'm hoping to be able to up it to, you know, a thousand. I'm hoping to be able to help more women down the road. I mean, that's why I work hard every day to try and raise more funds in a sustainable fashion so that we can pull that trigger and say, yes, like now each woman can get a thousand dollars and that hopefully will be really helpful. There's other things I want to do. I mean, I meet with my advisory board every year and I run my ideas by them and they give me their feedback. I want to open it up to adoptive families because even if you don't give birth physically, bringing a new problem to your family is an adjustment period. People need time off. I want to make a provision that if the woman is the main breadwinner, that they can be eligible for more money because if she's not working, then they might be taking even more of a hit. So I've tried to like, I've tried to base how I grow the organization and evolve it um, on feedback from the people. So like initially I was thinking, well, maybe instead of two women a month, we'll go to three women a month. But what I was hearing from people was that like more money would be more helpful and it kind of fits more so the need than more women. So that's why I upped it to 750 instead of upping it to three. So, I mean, we're still fairly new. I'm figuring it out as I go along, but you know, I just had to be willing to step up and say like, I think this is for me and I'm going to make it happen. And it reminds me of another story, famous story from the Torah of Basya or Batya, who was Pharaoh's daughter, saw baby Moses in his little bassinet floating Um. down the river and wanted to save him. And it says that, you know, she reached out her arm but her arm wasn't long enough. The baby was in like the middle of the river, right? So there's an explanation that she reached out her arm and her arm was able, actually able to extend all the way to the baby. Like God made a miracle because she said, I can go this far. So if you can take me farther, we can do it together. Yeah. And I really think that happens. I mean, if you believe in God, if you believe in fate, if you believe in serendipity, you know, you see all these connections and you, you, you believe it. you're not just here for no reason. And you're not just here by accident. And all these things don't just align for accident. You have to be willing to do your best. And I think God will do the rest. Wow. I know that you had a lot of talents and a lot of knowledge to get going with this, but I think there was a lot of new over here. There was probably a lot of, I don't know. I don't know. I've never done this before. This yeah. is totally a new thing. I don't know how it's going to turn out. And you still forged ahead like Batya, like reaching out her arm and waiting for the miracle to happen. We have other people in the Bible that also kind of just took the plunge. We have that that man, Nachshon, Nachshon, the son of Aminadab, who went into the water before the water split. The water was up to his nostrils. It's an amazing story. Like he had faith. He just went in. He knew God is going to do a miracle for the Jewish people. So he was like waiting with anticipation. And we have it again and again. And what it really shows us is not to be so afraid, not to sit in our overwhelm, but to really lean on our faith and on our God-given talents, right? There's this beautiful teaching in Judaism that says, I can't remember exactly how it goes. It's open me an opening the size of a needle hole, like that little teeny, teeny opening. And I will open you an opening the size of a banquet hall. Have you ever heard Mm -hmm. that that expression? Sounds familiar. In Hebrew, it's 
Pitchuli petach shall machat. Like, I'll make such a big opening, but you need to make that first initial effort. In Hebrew, we say, your efforts, and then God will bless your efforts. And that's clearly what happened over here. I'm wearing these earrings in honor of you today. It says, believe she can. If you have the fire, the passion, the desire, and you see the need, and you just do your part, it yeah. will be blessed. Mm-hmm. In fact, when I was going to press record after Mandy and I got on and we chatted for a minute or two about putting our kids to bed and all that stuff, I said, I said that the line that I say to everyone I record with, I say, B'shem Hashem in the name of God, let's just be successful. Let's put something out there to the world, right? It's not us. It's a little effort and a lot of God. So Mandy, I'm so super inspired by your words. I feel like it's very practical what you're teaching us because everyone is limited by themselves. We hold ourselves back. We stay in our place of fear, overwhelm. And you're saying, what do you know? Lean on what you know, what you're good at. That's like tipping you in the right direction to what you need to do for the world and just move it forward. God will bless it. So is there anything else you'd like to leave us with tonight? I would just say we're all enrolled in Google University these days. I mean, we have so much information at our fingertips and we have so many people around us that know more than we do in the areas that we want to. So like you're saying, believe in yourself enough. And if you're passionate about something, that's what someone can't teach you. Mm. No one else can give you that. You can't learn how to be passionate about something. So if you have that, you can learn the rest and you have to believe in yourself the way that other people believe in you. I think we all feel that way about our friends. We might have friends who lack confidence or friends who don't understand how great they are. You just think like, why can't they see what I see? They're obviously talented. They're obviously smart. We don't always see ourselves the way that others see us. And by the way, I mean, Moses also didn't. Like they say he was the most humble person on earth. He tried to tell God like, sorry, you got the wrong guy. You know, like I once heard a woman speak when I was still living in Seattle. Her name is Shimona Tsukernik. She's an inspirational speaker. And she said, it's not enough to believe in God you have to know that God believes in you. Mm. So, you know, he puts you places for a reason. You care about things for a reason. You learn things for a reason. And I think the average person wants to make the world a better place. They just don't know how. Mm. And sometimes it might be staring you right in the face. Wow. Thank you so much. This was such a gift. So fun to spend time with you. And I'm looking forward to whatever we could do together. And I have a feeling it's going to be lots of fun things. So it's a pleasure. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you everyone for joining. Have a wonderful night. Bye. Thank you for listening. We value that you are a part of our community. Be sure to check out our other podcast episodes and to learn more about the work that we do at Inspire Jewish Women. Please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website at www.inspired.com jewishwomen.com. Notice that we use the word woman and not woman in plural because Jewish women are most powerful when we bond together and we together can create amazing positive changes in the world. Bye for now. Hope to see you again soon so we could continue this conversation.